If you have a Bible this morning, uh, go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 records the beginning of one of Jesus' most beautiful sections of teaching that have been, that's been recorded for us, that's come down to us across the ages. A section teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus on the kingdom that he came to bring. Matthew's already told us that early on in his ministry, Jesus was going all over his part of the world talking about the kingdom. That's all he ever wanted to talk about, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Inviting people to come and be part of it. And Matthew has set down on paper, for our sake, something about what Jesus was saying. He's given us a glimpse into how Jesus described his kingdom. And especially in this first section called the Beatitudes, into what kind of people are in his kingdom. What does it look like to be with him? To have lives that are shaped by the priorities of the kingdom Jesus came to build. That's what we've been unpacking layer by layer through the Beatitudes. Taking one verse at a time and really trying to give it its full due. This morning we come to Matthew 5 verse 7. And we come to a bit of a shift. From, from verses where Jesus was talking about the character of the people who are in the kingdom. On the inside. How they understand themselves. To the way that the people who are in the kingdom relate to each other. What kind of treatment of each other will people who are with Jesus demonstrate? This morning we come to mercy. Now mercy is something we're drawn to, even moved by. Many of the great stories hinge on people receiving mercy. Think of the way Les Mis opens, for example. We have all experienced mercy. We've been personally moved by people who have chosen to treat us better than we deserve. But here Jesus is going to tell us that mercy is something we don't just experience, but if we're with him, it's something we demonstrate. It's something we have and show to people who don't deserve it. It's a difficult portrait in front of us. It's one we want to be really careful with. One that we want to walk through in, in, in the way that, that shows respect to Jesus and what he meant. To try to understand his meaning in light of what he says in other parts of the gospel. And then to, to walk through very carefully in light of who we are. What we struggle with. Where this passage is likely to hit home to us. And so what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I, want to, I want us to take three steps. What Jesus means by mercy. What it takes us to be merciful and then why mercy isn't optional for Christians those are the three steps I want us to take over this one simple statement that Jesus makes near the beginning of his sermon would you stand with me now I'm going to read the statement that Jesus makes about those who are with him in his kingdom then we're going to unpack it together layer by layer this is God's word it's for us this morning Matthew 5 7 says Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is God's word. You can be seated. What does Jesus mean by mercy? One of the things we've had to do each week in these Beatitudes, because they're such short, concise, pithy statements, is we've had to look elsewhere to find out what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't elaborate on what he means by mercy. He assumes that his friends would know when he says this. So we've got to go to places where Jesus is elaborating. 
or we've got to go to the places that his friends would have been familiar with. So some of the times we've been looking back into the Old Testament to bring from what Jesus would have known as his Bible into what Jesus is talking about here in his life to understand what he's, what, where he's coming from. This morning, it's tough to do that because the Old Testament talks about mercy in a couple of different ways. I mean, sometimes mercy in the Old Testament is showing compassion to those who are needy. It's, it's reaching out to those who are miserable and helping to give them what they need. But other times, mercy is more like pardon, more like what God shows through the sacrifices of Israel to not count their sins against them. What does Jesus mean by it? One of the best ways to figure out what he means is to look at other times that he uses this word in Matthew's gospel. And for, for, uh, for several reasons, commentators that I read believe that what, what Jesus means here when he uses it, because of how he uses it in other places in the gospel, he's, he's narrowing in, he's focusing on mercy as a kind of pardon for one who's done wrong. Mercy as a refusal to make somebody pay for what they've done. Mercy is like forgiveness. Now, there's several reasons why they believe that's what he's talking about. I think one of the most important, though, is, is the way that Jesus uses this word in Matthew. When Matthew wants to talk about mercy, when Matthew wants to record what Jesus has to say about it, this is the spin that Jesus is putting on it. This mercy as pardon for what somebody has done wrong. But through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to go there. He's got a section on how we're supposed to love our enemies coming up later on in chapter 5. Later after that, he's got a section on how we shouldn't judge one another lest we be judged. One of Jesus' main themes in this sermon, when he's talking about his kingdom, is that people don't hold one another to strictly what, to, to paying for what they've done. They are merciful towards one another. But I, wanna, I actually want to take us to a different place in Matthew, not just later on in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get to that later in this series. I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 18. I think this is the best place to know what Jesus is talking about when he, when he says, blessed are the merciful. This is an insight, a little window into what Jesus means by mercy. It's one of his most memorable parables. One of Jesus' favorite ways to teach was to tell stories. Stories that helped you put yourself into what he was talking about. That helped it come to life. Become more than just words, but to, to sort of take on flesh for people. One of his most memorable is in Matthew 18. It starts in verse 21. There his, his disciples are talking to Jesus about what the kingdom is going to be like. They're trying to ask good questions about what Jesus is teaching. So they make sure they get, that they get it. It wasn't easy for them. Didn't, they didn't get it all at once. They had to ask good questions. And here in Matthew 18, Peter is going back and forth with Jesus. So Jesus has been talking about loving your enemies. He's been talking about not judging. He's been talking about forgiveness. But Peter knows. I mean, at some point, you've got to draw the line, right? How many times do you have to be hurt by somebody before you say, that's enough? So Peter asked Jesus, in verse 21 of Matthew 18, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Peter thought he was, that was a big deal. How about, I, how about I forgive him seven times? Wouldn't that be awesome? And Jesus says to them, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And even that wasn't meant to be a cap. It's Jesus saying, you just keep on forgiving. And then he tells a story to make sure it's clear why that's the case. I want to walk you through this parable. Picks up in verse 23. This is what Jesus means by mercy in our verse this morning. Here's what Jesus says. Therefore the kingdom of heaven, still talking about the kingdom, just like in the Sermon on the Mount, may, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And you're forgiven if you don't know what a talent is. I don't either. Every time I come across it, I have to look at the footnote in my Bible and remember that a talent is something like, well, according to my Bible's footnote, a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. All right, so this guy owes 10,000 talents. Now, I'm not a math guy, but by my count, that means his debt is unpayable. It's 200,000 annual salaries or something like that. Basically, he owes his whole life and everything that's valuable to him and then some. And that comes out in this king's response to him. Since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold. He owes his whole life. He ordered his wife and children to be sold. He owes everything he loves. And he orders all that he had to be sold. And payment to be made. That's the servant's condition before the king. And even that wouldn't cut it. So the servant fell on his knees, verse 26, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. A little bit delusional, but he recognizes he's in a bad spot. He appeals to the mercy of the king and out of pity, verse 27 says, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He didn't give him more time to come up with the money. The money wasn't going to get come up with. He forgave it. He set him free. He gave him back his life. But when that same servant went out, verse 28 says, he found one of his fellow servants, a peer, who owed him a hundred denarii. It's about a day's, each denarii was about a day's wage. So it's not nothing, but it's not 200,000 annual salaries either. About three months' work. He found a man that owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him. Saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant, the man he's choking, the man who owes him three months pay. That man fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he was probably right. He could have come up with that money eventually. With enough time. But the servant refused. And he went and put him in prison. Until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place. They were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master. All that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt. Because you pleaded with me. And verse 33 brings it back to mercy. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words, even if this guy had paid you, it would have been owed to me anyway. Everything you have and then some by rights is mine. Who are you? To demand your pound of flesh. 
from someone who owes you nothing compared to what you owe me? Shouldn't you have had mercy? That's the point of the parable and it's the point of Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful. What he's saying is, blessed are those who treat others as God has treated them. Blessed are those who are not like the guy in the parable. There's your translation. Blessed are the merciful means blessed are those who are not like that guy. So, where do you see yourself? You said that to be merciful in this sense is to refuse to make somebody pay for what they've done to you. That's what it is to be merciful. And friends, there are a lot of ways, a lot of different ways that you can make somebody pay. I wonder what that looks like for you. There's a direct way, the combative way, the northeastern way. You call it like you see it. You feel wronged, you let the person know about it. There's that way, the most obvious way, but there are subtle ways too. We'll call it the southeastern way. <laughs> there are indirect ways to make people pay. Ways that may not be seen by the ones who've done wrong. Maybe not confrontational, but maybe you have a really hard time letting go of a grudge. Where they're paying, whether they recognize it or not, by the way you feel about them. Maybe internally you stew on it. You replay what's been done on a loop. Maybe you process it with other people. Try to get them to affirm your feelings. Maybe you make them pay by the hit to their reputation that they don't even recognize. Or maybe you just hold them responsible for what they've done in your heart. What does Jesus mean by blessed or the merciful? What does he mean by mercy? Here's the way one commentator put it. Mercy is closely linked with forgiveness, but is broader here than just the forgiveness of specific offenses. It's a generous attitude. Mercy is a generous attitude which is willing to see things from the other's point of view and is not quick to take offense or to gloat over others' shortcomings. That's what Jesus means by mercy. Mercy is not making someone pay in ways large or small for what they've done to you. A generous attitude. So where do we get that kind of mercy in ourselves? How do we become the merciful people Jesus calls blessed here? Or as I put it on your worship guide, what it takes to be merciful. Jesus doesn't tell us in verse 7 of Matthew 5. But verse 7 of Matthew 5 falls on the heels of verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6. So Jesus has been building for us a picture of the kind of person who can show mercy. And what I want to do to, to, to help you understand what it takes to be merciful in the way Jesus is praising here is help you make a connection between the things we've talked about in the last several weeks and this, this celebration of mercy. 
because these beatitudes are not sort of pick and choose which ones you like, which ones you really want to have, and then maybe set the others aside. They aren't personality traits, character traits that you're either born with or you don't have. It's a comprehensive picture of everybody who's with Jesus. If you're with him, you've got them all because he's going to give them to you. So if you want mercy, if you want to be merciful, then you've got to be poor in spirit and you've got to mourn over your sin and you've got to be meek. And you've got a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm going to show you what that looks like for a few minutes. To be merciful first. What does it take to be merciful? First, you've got to recognize you're not in a position to be anybody's judge. In other words, you've got to be poor in spirit. The debtor wasn't poor in spirit. It looked like he was for a while. You know, he falls down on his face and he's pleading with this guy for his life. But even then there's a hint that he doesn't really get how far, he, how far he's fallen. He thinks he can still pay him back. He owes 200,000 annual salaries and he's like, just give me more time and I'll pay it. I promise, I'll pay it. He looks poor in spirit, maybe a little bit, but he really isn't. He doesn't realize he's bankrupt and hopeless. And that's why he's so quick to pounce on the flaws of somebody else. He's still trying to save face a little bit. He's not the kind of guy who doesn't pay his debts. He's a cut above that kind of guy. So when one of these guys who doesn't pay his debts comes, presents himself in front of him, he pounces. He needs to be able to say to himself and to anyone else who is looking at him, I'm not like that guy. He doesn't get it. And when we're not aware of our emptiness, when we're, not, when, we are, when we're still trying to prop up a solid image of ourselves, then we are going to pounce on the flaws of other people. That's just going to happen. We can't afford to look past their flaws. Their flaws are how we know we're a cut above. But the poor in spirit have given up on standing out. The poor in spirit have given up on justifying themselves. In fact, the poor in spirit have given up on demanding anything like justice. Because they know what justice would mean for them. They are nobody's judge. So friends, if you find yourself quick to pounce on other people's flaws... maybe even taking comfort in the flaws of other people. It might be because you're not poor in spirit. That's number one. Here's number two. What does it take to be merciful? You've got to mourn over your own sin. If you want to be merciful towards anybody else, you're going to have to mourn over your own sin. That was what we talked about a few weeks ago when we covered blessed are those who mourn. We've got to be broken hearted over what we've done to God. If we are, if we're broken hearted over what we've done, then we won't be shocked or outraged that other people are sinful too. We'll be broken hearted for them. Our experience of their sin, even their sin against us, won't be shock 
won't be outrage. It'll be empathy. When we see them, we will see ourselves in them. That's what the debtor in the parable was missing. He got over his own need for mercy way too quick. He wasn't brokenhearted over the debt he couldn't pay. He didn't mourn over the way he had treated his master. So he wasn't melted by gladness and joy, by genuine gratitude when his master chose not to treat him the way he deserved. He got over his own desperate condition so quick that he acted shocked that somebody else might not be able to pay their debts. Who is this guy? The guy can't pay him a hundred denarii. And he's shocked by it. He's outraged by it. He seizes him and chokes him. Throws him into prison on the spot. When you mourn over your own sin, then you'll see that you're more like those who sin against you than you're not. That their sins against you aren't in some sort of special category that are different from your sin. That their sins against you are nothing compared to your sins against God. Once we see our own sin like that, when we mourn over our own sin, then actually it creates what some have called a, a, a trauma bond, right? When you re- it, it's common knowledge that when you experience something difficult that's similar to what other people have experienced, there's this bond there that's immediate. They get me. I get what they're going through. It, it, it creates this, this tightness that you can't hardly find anywhere else. When we mourn over our sin, that kind of bond should be created among sinners. Because when I see what you're doing, I see myself in it. I know how ugly that is. I know what that feels like. I know what that blindness looks like. Your sins don't make you different from me. They make you like me. So I'm not going to be alienated by it. If you're shocked, friends, or outraged, at the sins of other people, it might be because you're not mourning over your own sin. What does it take to be merciful? Number three, you've got to be meek. You see where this is going? <laughs> you've got to be meek. If you want to be merciful, you've got to be meek. In other words, you won't be quick to take offense. That's what we talked about with meekness. Meekness is a kind of stillness in life, a kind of stability that comes when you trust that God protects everything that really matters. That you don't have to defend yourself because He defends you. That meekness makes people really hard to offend because they're not looking to be mistreated. Not looking for mistreatment. When mistreatment comes, the meek don't spend their energy unpacking or dissecting the offenses of other people against them. They don't spend their energy reading between the lines. They don't spend their energy explaining people away with some sort of textbook labels. They don't bring in others to confirm the offense. They don't turn the offender into an object defined by what they've said or done wrong. The meek, because they trust God protects them and defends them, the meek are set free, have space carved out not to explain away or dismiss the one who's offended them, but to actually enter into what it's like to be them. 
Meekness creates space for something that doesn't make sense unless you're with Jesus. And that's empathy or identification even with the people who hurt you. It buys space to recognize that these people are people with a backstory, that they're pe- people who are shaped by experiences that we may not see or understand, that maybe they were having a certain kind of day, maybe they were preoccupied by certain kind of concerns. I think of Jesus here as our great model. Reflecting on meekness a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus doesn't tell us to learn how to raise the dead or heal the blind or or feed 5,000 people with a boy's snack. He doesn't tell us to do any of that. He's got that stuff covered. What he wants from us, what he wants us to learn from him, what he wants us to learn from him is his meekness. Come to me, he said, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. Where do we see his meekness in play? I can't think of any better examples than in Luke 23 when Jesus hanging on the cross because of nothing that he had done wrong, because of a drastic miscarriage of justice. Luke 23, Jesus has just been nailed to the cross. He's being slandered by all those who were watching him. He's been beaten to within an inch of his life. And he prays to his father in that moment, He prays to his father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They nail his hands and his feet to a cross. He prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They spit on him. They mock him. They hold up sour wine to him just to make his thirst even worse. He prays for them, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They mock him. They say he claimed he could save others. Let him save himself. Come on down off the cross if you're some sort of God. He prays for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' meekness doesn't treat even those who are killing him in the way that they deserve. In fact, His meekness, in his meekness, his interest is in their backstory, is in empathizing with where they're coming from, even as they kill him unjustly. He prays to his father, explaining them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't get what's going on here. He's almost, not, not fully, don't take this too far, but he's almost defending them. Friends, if you're not able to self-correct when you're offended, to consider where somebody else is coming from, it may be that you're not meek. Pray for meekness. Here's the last thing that it takes to be merciful. What does it take to be merciful? Well, you've got to be poor in spirit. You've got to mourn over your own sin. You've got to be meek. And you've got to be hungry for righteousness. Because when you're hungry for righteousness, when you, when you hunger for righteousness, what you want most is not personal vindication or satisfaction, 
but an opportunity to honor God. Remember what we talked about last week with righteousness? Righteousness is a being related rightly to God in a way that makes sense, in a way that's appropriate to him and his glory. The righteousness Jesus was talking about was a quality of life that celebrates and honors God and his goodness. And what greater honor is there than imitation? If what we're hungry for is righteousness, a quality of life that brings honor and happiness to God, what better way to honor him than to try to be like him, than to mimic the way he has shown love and mercy to us? When what you're really hungry for in life is a chance to honor him, then when you are wronged by someone else, there's your chance. Think about the gospel. Think of its precious promises to us. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, Titus chapter 3. A couple of my favorite descriptions of the gospel. I always start with the before. What were we on our own apart from God's grace? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were slaves, going around enslaved to the passions of the flesh, doing whatever it is that we wanted to do, only thinking about ourselves, hating one another and being hated by one another. That's what Paul says. That's what we were. What has God done for those who were hostile to him? By his mercy, Paul says, because of his love with which he loved us, by which he loved children of wrath, he made us alive together with Christ. His response to people who take the breath that he gives them and use it to oppose him, who take the beautiful things that he's filled the world with and put within their reach and worship them instead of him, his response to people who have never been satisfied with the good things that he's given them, his response to them was to give them more. His response to them was to give them his son. The most precious object of all of his, of his affection, of his love poured out on his son from all of eternity. And these creatures that he's made in his own image who reject him with every day of their lives, who never are satisfied with what he's given, he gives them Jesus. Who does that? And he's done it, Paul says, so that in the ages to come he can show us the surpassing value of his grace to us in Christ Jesus. He takes unsatisfied people, gives them his son, and sets them up with Jesus so that forever he can give them everything they could ever want and then some. Now, that's what God promises to you if you'll trust in him. That can be yours this morning, friends if you'll recognize you have nothing to recommend yourself to Jesus except your need for him. He will be yours. And when you are possessed by that mercy, by a God who has treated you like that, then when you're mistreated by somebody else, you've got yourself a tailor-made, precious opportunity to in some small flickering way 
reproduce the light that has shined on you in Christ. You've got an opportunity to bring honor to God by imitating his goodness. Friends, you've got to be more hungry for righteousness than for personal justice, for setting things right, if you ever want to show mercy consistently. Through the pain of what others have done to you, you've got to be able to see the truth. That in that moment, you've got an opportunity to honor the one who loves you. You've got an opportunity to say, let me show you what he's done. It looks a little bit like this. And forgive. And here's the last thing I want to leave you with. I want to make sure it's clear to you, friends, why mercy like this is not optional for Christians. Jesus, just like with all the other Beatitudes, Jesus isn't primarily saying that we ought to try to be more merciful. He is saying that. We should try to be more merciful. In some sense, we should all want, it, want that and strive for it. That's not really what Jesus is saying, though. Jesus is primarily saying you will be merciful if you're with me. If you enjoy a place in the kingdom of heaven by the good graces of a merciful king and by his grace alone. If you're with me, you'll be merciful. I think this is the place to mention how this verse reads. It sounds like what Jesus is saying is that the merciful are those who will receive mercy. That in other words, you've got to be merciful to get mercy. It almost sounds like Jesus is offering mercy, his mercy, as a wage. Be merciful, I'll pay you with mercy. That's what it sounds like, but we've got to read this in context. That is not what he's saying. For one thing, that's just, that would turn mercy into a senseless word. Mercy is, by definition, not getting what you deserve. So you don't get mercy as something you deserve. It's impossible. It's just not what the word means. So what, is, what does he mean? What's the context here? The context here is that you don't get mercy without being defined by these traits of people who are with my kingdom, without being poor in spirit, recognizing you've got nothing that you can offer to God, by being Mournful over your sin, recognizing you don't deserve his goodness to you. By being meek, trusting everything to him. I'll stand or fall with him. By hungering after righteousness. You don't get mercy without being the kind of person who's marked by these traits, by those who know they need mercy. You don't get mercy unless you know you need mercy. And if you know you need mercy, then you will give mercy. Those who don't give mercy are those who don't know how bad they need mercy. Remember the parable? Those who don't give mercy to others are those who don't know how badly they need mercy. And if you don't know how badly you need mercy, if you aren't poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, meek before God and man, hungry for righteousness, if you don't know you need mercy, then you're not going to get it. So, giving mercy and receiving mercy always have to go together. You never get one without the other. And that means, on the ground, 
that not showing mercy to other people is not an option for you if you want to be with him. There are other ways to be. You don't have to be with Jesus. If you want to be with Jesus, though, you can't hold back mercy. What it means on the ground, what it looks like for you, that's something for you to pray about, for you to talk about with your friends. But at least it means this. It isn't an option for you as a Christian to hold a grudge against anybody. Not when God has canceled the record of your sins against him. Do you need to seek reconciliation with somebody this morning? It means it's not an option for Christians to stay distant from somebody because you had a poor interaction with them or something distasteful in their personality, something that just doesn't sit right with you. Not everybody has to be best friends. But you don't get to hold yourself back because of dislike. Christians can't assume they have somebody else figured out. Christians can't assume that even if your instincts are right, even if the things you're noticing are true about that person, Christians don't get to assume that person can't change. Jesus is in the business of turning people's lives around, of transformation. If you're with him, you know that. So you never give up on anybody. Christians, by mercy, want to enter in, want to help the person change because that's what God has done for them. It means it's not an option for Christians to show selective mercy, to be patient and empathetic with some kinds of struggle, with some kinds of messiness, but not others. Sometimes we can be drawn to people who have certain issues for one reason or another but can be dismissive or condescending towards other problems. Christians don't get to do that. God's mercy reaches to everyone who knows they need it. Ours has to do that too. It's not an option for Christians to take... This is where I'll leave you. It's not an option for Christians to take offense at something and stop short of the work it takes to take things in a better light. Christians do get offended. That happens. We're not in heaven yet. And if we're faithful to Jesus' calling, we're going to mix it up with all sorts of sinful people, sinful like us. That means our interests won't always be respected. That means we won't always be loved well. That means there will be reason to be offended sometimes. But when we're with Jesus, when we're marked by his mercy, it is not an option for us to absorb the offense and leave it there and not do the work that it takes to try to imagine it in a better light, to try to understand where somebody might be coming from, to maybe ask them about it and give them a chance to fill out the picture for you. Christians are looking to give mercy wherever and however they can. It doesn't mean it isn't hard. It does mean you don't get to not do the work. Not if you want to be with Jesus. This promise is, this passage is a promise that he will do that work in you. 
If you're with him, you are blessed, you are merciful, and you will receive mercy. It's a package deal. And it's yours if you trust in him this morning. Father, we, we want to be a people that look like this. Not just individuals, but a community, a church of people who are constantly showing each other mercy. Who actually, despite the hardness of it and sometimes the pain in it, who actually find joy in our opportunities to show mercy to people who don't deserve it. I pray that you would make that part of our culture. That it would be normal. That it would be beautiful. That we would see it and celebrate it together. Because you have shown mercy to us. We want to be a people that reflect the beauty of your mercy. Help us by, G- by, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to continue worshiping by singing songs that respond to the message we've heard. Both of the songs that we're going to sing now focus on...